Turn in your Bibles, please, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 this morning. While you're turning there, just a few uh, comments. Um, I'm going to read this passage and then we're going to pray. And uh, a couple things that we've been praying about as a church. Uh, one, uh, many of you have been praying for Stephanie Gast. Stephanie uh, was in the hospital on a ventilator and is no longer on a ventilator and she is improving. And so that's an answer to prayer. And I don't want to go on with life without acknowledging that our God is good and, and because of his mercy and grace in, in her life, he has uh, enabled her to make progress. She's still in a hospital and completing some, some rehab. Obviously, you go through something like that, it takes time to to regain your strength, and so let's continue to pray for Stephanie. Um, also wanted to ask you to pray for Carla Narcomy this week. Carla kind of, this came together sort of at the last minute, but Carla is actually leaving today. I think she already left uh, to go on a missions trip to Honduras where she'll be joining with a team uh, to do a church-based evangelism, kind of like uh, different trips that we've had in the past. Uh, there in some of the most remote areas of Honduras. And so Carla will be there all week. And so let's be praying for Carla as well. Uh, also wanted to just point out that I know Sundays, there are a lot of things that go through our minds and, and sometimes they, those things can be a little bit distracting. And on a day like today, when our teens are gonna head out right after the service on a missions trip, you know, and you're thinking about that, uh, maybe something else is, is uh, on your mind as well. And our tendency when the sermon is over, when the pastor starts to kind of land the plane and you guys have learned the inflection of my voice and you probably can tell when I'm about two minutes away from being done and our tendency is kind of to go, okay, I'm going to close my Bible, I'm going to get the purse, I'm going to be ready to go and ready to get out of the gate, you know, when the time comes. And I would just ask you today, uh, we really shouldn't do that any day, uh, but... Uh, today, after I preach, I'll be giving a uh, an update for you on the uh, status of our building uh, plan. Uh, for those of you who are new here, we as a church have been thinking and praying and planning uh, a new building uh, for quite some time, and we, you know, it's a long process, so we just want to give an update today. And that's going to have a lot of detail. So I'm going to ask you to keep your thinking cap on, even though it's going to be close to lunch. And stay with me uh, until we get through that update, and then you can go. All right. If you're our guest, you might think, oh, I don't care about that. It might be good for you to see the way that we handle business as a church. So I would encourage you to stay as well, and then we can uh, visit after the service. All right, let's go ahead and read our sermon text today, which comes from the second chapter of James, and we'll begin in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet. In our church, we would say, you have to sit on the front row. 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, we needed that reminder about the blood of Christ and will need it as we think about this reality that each one of us is tempted to play favorites, to act out of prejudice, to show partiality, to be a respecter of persons. And so, Father, as we look into this text and 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 it becomes like a mirror showing us what we're like. I pray that you would make us people who do not walk away forgetting what manner of person we are, but by the power of your Spirit and in light of the truth of the Gospel, I pray that you would cause us to lay our lives on the altar and be living sacrifices renewed in our minds and transformed into the image of Christ. And I pray that you would do it today. Lord, I I pray for those this morning who are here or listening online who want to do better but ultimately have a greater problem because they haven't called out to you in faith for forgiveness. And so, Father, I pray that by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, you would open eyes And that when Christ is lifted up, you would draw all men to him. Lord, we thank you for your answering of our prayers and and your mercy in the life of Stephanie Gast. Lord, you always are so good to us and you've been good in this way too. We pray that you would continue to strengthen Stephanie's body. I pray that you give her uh, perseverance and, and continued faith as she heals. And I pray that she would rapidly get better, and be able to come home and serve you. Uh, We pray for Carla as she travels today and gets ready to do this ministry in Honduras. I pray that you would uh, give her your grace, and I pray that you would give her your your word and and a clarity of mind and a clarity of of speech as she goes out and participates in this trip. And uh, I ask that you'd make her effective. And then, Lord, after the, the preaching, I ask that you would give us all grace and wisdom as we deal with the matter that is not nearly as important as the gospel we preach. 
but is uh, very important to the future of our church. Uh, We need your wisdom, Father, and so we ask that you would give it in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine with me for a moment that you have decided to volunteer in our church nursery. Not a bad idea, by the way. It's your first day. You arrive early, you uh, get the room ready, you put a smile on your face, you start checking in the babies as they arrive, you greet the parents, you take the kids, you place them on the floor next to a toy or in a swing or a crib, whatever it it is that people do in the nursery nowadays. And then just before the service is about to start, two people show up at the exact same moment to drop off their infant. Both are first-time guests, but that's where the similarities end. One is a dad in his early 30s, athletic, a nice haircut, expensive clothes, kind of like Bill Sessom. He smiles warmly as he walks up with his little girl in a brand new outfit, a beautiful baby with soft brown hair, long eyelashes, and a cheerful smile. The other person is a young mother. You can tell she's barely 20, but those few years have not been kind. Her hair is greasy, no makeup. Her her baggy t-shirt has a spit-up stain on the shoulder. There are two older children behind her, maybe four or five years old. They look even worse. There's visible grime on their faces. And she's carrying this little boy in an ill-fitting onesie. He's hitting his mother. He's squirming. He's whining. He smells bad. He's got something crusty underneath those lonely strands of hair. Mucus is crusted on his face, drool is dripping down his pimply chin, and there you stand, and you've just got the split second to decide. They both arrive at the exact same time, both lean in to hand you their baby, and you reach out. Which baby did you reach for? What about when the parents are gone and both kids need a snack and you reach down and you pick one up and you put them in the high chair? Which baby gets put in the high chair first? What about they both want to read a book right at the exact same time? Which one do you reach down and pick up and put in your lap? Now, if there's anybody in our church who has the heart of compassion that's modeled after Christ, it's the folks who volunteer in our church nursery. So don't misunderstand me. But I think we can all understand and imagine this sort of dilemma that you would have in your own mind in such a situation. The the fact of the matter is that in certain circumstances, there are people that we lean toward and there are people that we lean away from for one reason or another. James describes a similar situation in our passage to show just how easy it is, even in the church of Jesus Christ, to play favorites to operate out of personal prejudice, to dishonor those whom God loves with an everlasting love while giving deference to those just because of their material wealth or because of some other external quality that they have. We all know it happens, and it hurts when we're on the other end of it, when we're dismissed because we're young or because we're old or because of our, how much money we have or because of our gender or the car we drive or our last name or for any other reason. And, and yet each of us is just as likely to struggle with the sin of partiality as the next person is. 
Here in this short letter, James is giving believers like you and me real wisdom. He's showing us how to live wisely, how to live skillfully in the world. You might recall that several weeks ago we saw that in order to be a wise person, we must not only hear but do what is written in the Word of God, the Bible. And if we are going to be people who truly obey God's Word, who are doers of the Word and not just hearers, then we must be people who, as James says in verse 1, show no partiality as we hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this passage, James is going to give us the information that we need to understand in order to follow Christ in this way. Verse 1 is the simple command. Verses 2 through 13 sort of explain and, and provide a basis for that command. And James is going to give us in these verses three realities about the sin of partiality that we need to grasp in order to avoid playing favorites. So let's look at each one of these one by one. First of all, understand about partiality that partiality is sneaky. Partiality is sneaky. Notice how James frames this instruction in verse one. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here's what he's saying. The sin of partiality is absolutely incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ because there is only one person in the church who really deserves the glory, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Uh, for, For the followers of Jesus Christ, it stands to reason that we would allow gospel truth to shape the way that we think, to shape the way that we interact. Every person we know is is made in the image of God. Every person living has broken God's commands, and every person living can only ever be reconciled to God because of Jesus' giving of himself. We know this. So on the one hand, we have no reason to be proud in ourselves or impressed or intimidated by somebody else. We certainly shouldn't be looking down on anybody. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He's the one that deserves 100% of our honor and 100% of our praise, not anybody else. And yet in spite of all that, look at the example James gives in verses 2 through 4. People are coming into the gathering place of the church and depending on their status and their wealth and their opulence and their appearance, they're being sorted into places of relative honor or dishonor. You could sit over here, the, the lighting's good, the seats are comfortable, the temperature's just right. Oh, you, you go sit over there on the floor. Actually, matter of fact, we, the bathroom needs clean. Get out there and do that and then you can come in. So in spite of the fact that all of us in the church have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and are being transformed by the Spirit of God, think about this. This sin is so sneaky, so insidious, so deceptive, that not just at any time, but at the very moment when God's people are gathered to respond in worship to the God of all the earth and to his son who gave his life for us, at that very moment, we can actually fall prey to playing favorites. It's a sneaky sin. How does this happen? How is it that this particular sin so easily finds its way even into the gathering of the people of God? We need to pause on this for a minute because I think many times we misunderstand how the sin of partiality, of favoritism, actually arises in the heart of an individual. Put yourself into James's example. Is it literally true that you think 
that there is something essentially different between the rich guy and the poor guy? Like, do you really believe that there is something essentially different about those two people? Maybe, but probably not. Think about it from the standpoint of someone living in, the, in, in, in antiquity. You, you, you don't treat this guy better, the rich guy, better because you think he's literally different from the poor guy. You do it because you're thinking about yourself. Maybe what's really driving you is fear that this rich person is going to retaliate against you and, and sort of punish you unless you give him the honor that, you think, uh, that he thinks he's due. Kind of like when the boss tells a joke. You feel like you kind of have to laugh, right? You want to stay on his good side. Or maybe the motivation isn't fear. Maybe it's something like greed. You have this little twinge of hope in your heart. Like maybe if I become friends with this wealthy person, he'll like me and maybe he'll invite me to, 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 to hang out with him and we'll get to do a lot of fun things together and I'll get to ride on the coattails of this rich person. Maybe your personal sense of worth is at stake and you feel like you need important friends in order to feel better about yourself. Maybe it's that you have a little bit of wealth and you just don't feel comfortable unless you're hanging out with other people who have wealth as well. So what I'm saying is there are lots of possible motivations, but the result is the same in each case. You're playing favorites. You're treating one person or group of people well and another person or a group of people poorly in contradiction to your faith. And we make all sorts of excuses for ourselves. But if we look around at the people that we spend time with, and it just so happens that all of those people are financially comfortable, culturally ascendant, while we're holding everybody else at arm's length, maybe, just maybe, it's possible that we have wandered into a lifestyle that's characterized by the sin of partiality. It's a sneaky sin. Here's the point. It's sneaky. It creeps in without you knowing it's there. And it can happen in any church in a myriad of different ways, not just along the axis between rich and poor. So let me give you just a few examples. Think back to the time of the apostles. Uh, These are men who had walked and talked with Jesus himself for years. One day, God visits the apostle Peter in a dream. And he reveals to Peter that it's not just the Jews but all people who believe in Christ who can be welcomed into the family of God. He has this dream about this. Do you remember in the book of Acts? And this truth is just earth-shattering. It's absolutely transformative. It's one of the things that made the church of Jesus Christ what it is. By the way, it's one of the reasons why 99% of us are even here today. I'm not ethnically Jewish, and yet I am one with Christ by faith, by, by his spirit regenerating me. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. And yet, years later, one of Peter's colleagues, the Apostle Paul, describes a time when he had to call Peter out for this sin of partiality. Peter was eating with the Gentiles in the church. They were gathering together for meals on a regular basis, as was their custom. And he treated everybody the same, but then his Jewish friends visited from another city. And Paul tells us that Peter became fearful. And in order to please his friends... He pulled back and he stopped eating with the Gentiles and started treating them like a pile of dirty dish rags. And and Paul has to call him out in, in front of everybody for playing favorites. Guys, this is Peter. This is the rock. This is a guy who was as close to Jesus of Nazareth as anybody in the world. And yet because he was afraid of his religious friends, 
he burned his Gentile brothers and brought a whole group of, of weak-willed Jewish Christians with him. There was, this was a culture problem in the church. Can you imagine sitting there at that potluck when Paul walks up and taps Peter on the shoulder? Hey, I've got something I need to say to you. Or let me give you another more recent example. George Whitfield was one of the most fruitful gospel preachers ever to hold forth in the English language. Historian Thomas Kidd calls him America's spiritual founding father. You could make the argument that Whitfield had more influence on American evangelicalism than any other human being on the planet. But then... Uh, Kidd, Dr. Kidd describes Whitfield's moral transformation on one of the f- defining issues of his time. When Whitfield first traveled from England to the American colonies, he was vehemently opposed to the institution of slavery, and he made a compelling case for the freedom and the dignity of the Africans who were enslaved in the plantations of the American South. He zealously preached to them. He argued for their full inclusion in the church. But then something happened. See, Whitfield's ministry began to hold sway in the South, and many of his converts were wealthy plantation owners living in South Carolina and Georgia. Some of his converts actually gave him large tracts of land, along with several slaves, to work the land. At one point, Whitfield began to rely on the income of a slave-operated plantation in order to finance an orphanage outside of Savannah. So, Notice what happened here. Whitfield had fallen prey to the sin of partiality. He's treating this group of people like they are subhuman, not because of some high-minded belief in the inferiority of black men, but because of his commitment to a pragmatic ministry concern. Do you see how that happened? Uh, he, He was worried about money for his orphanage. So when officials in Georgia, I didn't know this, until I read it this week. When officials in Georgia, this is just a colony at this point, they actually, for a a short period of time, outlawed the institution of slavery. Whitfield literally became its staunchest advocate because he was afraid he was going to lose the money and his orphanage would fall apart. A gospel preacher, one of the greatest in our American evangelical heritage, showing partiality by arguing publicly for the expansion of one of the most reprehensible human institutions in the history of Western civilization. Now, I wish I could say that Whitfield was the exception to the rule, but many of our spiritual ancestors owned slaves. What a a stain. What a grief to know that this is the case. But here's the point. If people like Peter the Apostle, people like George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards, or James Boyce, can be tricked by the sin of partiality if flagrant, offensive examples of this kind of sin show up in the lives of Christianity's brightest lights, then do we really think at Indian Creek Baptist Church that we are like so enlightened, that we have so arrived, that we would never, ever struggle from this tendency? I mean, who do we think we are? Do we really think that the sin of partiality is something to yawn about in 2021? I'm not the first person to point this out, and I will certainly not be the last, and I don't mean to pass judgment. I can't see your heart. (laughs) I have no idea what's in there. I can barely understand my own heart. But why is it that when someone mentions the dangers of a mysterious philosophical current like critical race theory, 
or we suspect someone of being a woke social justice warrior, we are like ready to go into battle for the purity of the gospel. But when someone points out a blind spot where we maybe are lacking compassion and flirting with the sin of partiality, we're just like yawn, like whatever, I don't think so. Is it so surprising to you that you might have been treating people differently because of their wealth or because of their profession or because of their social status or even the color of their skin? Is that so shockingly unbelievable? Amen, Jake. Partiality is a sneaky sin. But notice the second thing we need to understand about the sin of partiality. It is sneaky, but in the second place, partiality is senseless. Partiality is senseless. Notice how James calls us out for this nonsensical way of thinking in verses 5 through 7. He asks three rhetorical questions. Hasn't God chosen to honor the poor? Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you? Aren't the rich the ones who arrogantly reject your Savior? And the obvious answer to all of these questions is, well, yeah. And it's like James is popping each of his audience members on the forehead saying, duh, partiality is senseless. It doesn't make any sense. Now, questions like these might seem a little simplistic and and painting with a broad brush to you, but I think they'll make a lot more sense if we understand them in the context of their original uh, culture. New Testament scholar David Nystrom explains that the distribution of wealth and status in antiquity was really steep. Generally speaking, you had about 8% of the population who were wealthy, another 2% who were uh, kind of getting there. They were on the upward, upwardly mobile path. And then everybody else, the remaining 90%, would be what we would consider nowadays very, very poor. 90% of the people. Now, at the very top of society, this is the senator class, Wealth, money, didn't mean very much because everybody had wealth. I mean, it, it was more about who's your, who's your, who's your daddy, <laughs> all right? It was more about your last name and, and the pedigree of your family and everything. But most of those folks lived in or around the city of Rome. And so for most of the cities across the Roman Empire, wealth was a sign of status, Uh, How much money you had determined how important you were. Uh, If you had a lot of wealth, you could be elected to public office. If you were poor, you couldn't be elected to public office. Uh, You would have a lot of influence. You would have a lot of popularity. Wealthy people were actually expected. This wasn't the law. It wasn't some kind of progressive tax system. It was the culture. Wealthy people were expected to provide grain and meet, and fix roads in the city. And uh, the, the more they did that, the more they gave away, the more honor they got. That's just the way that the culture was. So imagine if our city were like this. Like we didn't have a progressive tax system or anything like that, but the top 5 or 10% were expected just culturally to fix all the roads and to provide food for everyone and make sure everyone got like something like a basic income I mean, we would probably pay more attention to who those people were. And if, and if they were doing more than everybody else, than all the other rich people, we would probably be tempted to say, hey, good job. 
I'm going to give you as much honor as I can. So that's the culture. So baked into ancient society was this idea that greater wealth equals greater honor. And if life is all about the here and now, think about this. If life is all about the creature comforts of the here and now, then this way of thinking makes absolute sense. Like if you are going to make my life easier in the here and now, and you have the resources to do that, then it makes total sense for me to treat you differently from everybody else. And I'm going I'm to honor you. I'm going to kind of kiss up to you because that's what life is all about. It's just the here and now. Everything is all about present circumstances. You see, we may not live in, in the same type of society that James lived in, but we tend to have a similar problem, root cause, don't we? The world and our sinful nature and the devil, they're always trying to get us to focus on that which is present in the here and now on the results of people's decisions and how they affect us right now. That person can make my life circumstances better. I'm going to be nice to him. That person is a drain on me. I'm going to try to get get rid of him. But here's a kernel of New Covenant wisdom. This is something you need to know. You get this, and you will be well on your way to living a wise Christian life. While our tendency is to size people up based on what we can see, on that which is outward and present in time and location. God looks at people totally differently. He sees that which is inward and final. So think about this. This is why James says that partiality and prejudice and favoritism make no sense because we're looking at something that doesn't matter. So what if that guy is rich now? Is he going to be rich on judgment day? So he did something right for the city, but is his heart right with God? If you're going to live a wise life, you must learn to look at the lowly, the way that God looks at them. Has not God, he says, chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You see, the world says, look at her clothes, look at her job, look at the car she drives, look at uh, all these external things or the lack thereof. Meanwhile, God's looking at her heart. And the only question that he's asking is, does she love me? Because he says in this verse, if the answer is yes, then in just a short time, she will come into her inheritance. And then what good will it have done that you dismissed her, that you avoided her? Partiality doesn't make any sense when you're thinking in terms of what God has done and what God is doing. When I think about the foolish way that I have sort of turned up my nose at those who lack wealth or status. I'm reminded of a passage in one of C.S. Lewis's greatest stories, a little book called The Great Divorce. How many of you have read The Great Divorce? Got like two people. You need to read it. It's a really, really good book. But in this fictional account, a man has a dream in which a busload of people who live in hell are permitted to visit heaven. This is fiction, all right? It's not saying that this actually happens. But there, they're able to interact with saints who they had known while they were still living on earth. In one scene, the protagonist hears beautiful music, and he watches as this retinue of angels pass by, and they're singing this heavenly music, and they're surrounding this majestic, gorgeous, holy woman as she walks past. And the guy asked the man who had become his guide in the dream, who is this person? Like, surely she must be someone of great importance, a queen or a princess or something like that. 
And what he learns is that this woman was a complete nobody on earth. Like she was just, just an average person. Her name was Sarah Smith, and she lived in a village called Golders Green. Just a normal housewife. Uh, there's a lot to this part of the story, but the point Lewis was making was that this woman, who had absolutely zero status, uh, very little wealth on earth, average talents, from the perspective of heaven, she was in Christ a dazzlingly glorious figure, honored and adored above all. And I just wonder, in our church, if we've ever met Sarah Smith from Golders Green. And instead of seeing her surrounded by those angels and seeing her from the perspective of eternity, we've seen the outward and present reality and we've focused on that and we have dismissed her when one day we will learn that this person is so far above anything that we could imagine in the here and now that one day we will wish we'd acted differently. See, if your thinking is aligned with the thinking of heaven, then partiality actually doesn't make any sense at all. If you're going to live wisely in this world, then you've got to learn to see from God's perspective and look at the lowly with God's eyes. But notice as well that you must learn to look at the rich the way that God looks at them. Look at verses 6 and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So don't get confused here. The issue is not that these people have a lot of money. The issue is their moral stance toward others and toward God. These are people who are actually using the levers of justice to commit injustice. Uh, They're dragging people into court unjustly. They're using the system to victimize the vulnerable. Yes, apparently that does happen. Not only that, but because these people have wealth, they're choosing to trust in their wealth instead of putting their trust in God. And so what James is saying is, wait a second, these are the people that you're giving deference to? These people, you're motivated by the fear of man, not the fear of God. These are people who don't have your best interests at heart. These are people who don't care about you. These are people who are living in rebellion against God. How do you think it's gonna go that you're giving your life to them? In other words, deferring to people just because they're rich or powerful or have status doesn't make any sense in God's economy. Instead, what you should be looking at is their character and their relationship with God. And I just wonder, have we learned this lesson in the church of Jesus Christ? We have a ways to go. And I'll step on your toes a little bit more. How many times have we operated out of the fear of man instead of the fear of God when it comes to our political engagement. I mean, isn't it true? We live in a society where to get to part- we get to participate in government. James didn't have that privilege, but we do. And what do we end up doing? We think, which candidate that I'm able to vote for is going to leave me with the most money in my pocket and the most creature comforts? And we show deference to some powerful person that we think will get us to where we want to be and we just focus on the here and now instead of looking at things from God's perspective and we ignore the fact that their character toward man and their their orientation toward God is way out of whack. 
what are we doing? We're valuing the here and now instead of the perspective of God in heaven. If we would share the perspective of Christ, we would recognize that to show favoritism makes no sense. Partiality is sneaky, but it's also senseless. And in the third place, would you notice with me from verses 8 through 13, partiality is serious. Partiality is serious. In other words, what we're talking about today is not a small, insignificant thing. It is a very big deal. Look with me at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now notice what James does. He is making a contrast between the sin of partiality on the one hand and keeping the second greatest commandment on the other. In other words, what you're doing, if you're showing partiality, you're actually breaking the second greatest command. If you're showing partiality, you're not loving your neighbor. If you're, not, if you're loving your neighbor, you're not going to show partiality. Those two things are mutually exclusive. So this is serious. When we show partiality, we're breaking the law. Notice as well, James isn't talking about the Mosaic law. You remember the law that Moses gave? We talked about it from the book of Exodus uh, over the last several months. He's talking, and he says this, he's talking about the law of Christ. Uh, This isn't the first time he's mentioned it. He calls it the law of liberty or the royal law. Uh, It's the moral teaching of Jesus delineated in places like the Sermon on the Mount and other chapters and, and being written on the hearts of believers progressively every day by the Spirit of God. And according to this passage and others like it, it is also a law, get this, by which we will be judged. Now, In our modern evangelical culture, we could be accused of being legalists if we take James literally here, but that's what we're going to do. Because notice what he says. So speak, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Did you catch what he said? Here's what James is saying. There is going to come a time when you will stand before the judge of all the earth and all the evidence is going to be laid out for him to see and there will be no excuses. There will be no legal spin. His judgments are always true and just and it won't ultimately matter in that moment whether you prayed some sinner's prayer when you were seven or whether you'd been baptized or whether you came up in a Christian home or whether you were a member of a church. The trappings of religion will be gone. And James says, like Paul and the other New Testament writers, that whether or not you kept the law of liberty by loving your neighbor will have a prominent place in how that judgment goes. Do you have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Do you have religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father? Or are you deceiving your own heart? One thing's for sure, we'll find out. And the truth of the matter is that if we harbor prejudice and partiality and favoritism, if we treat people based on what we think we're going to get out of them, if that's our habit of life, then the day will come when we will be exposed as lawbreakers and there will be judgment without mercy on those who have shown no mercy. And and I just want to ask each and every one of us today, is that going to be our future? 
or is mercy going to triumph over judgment? See, I can't tell who's who. I really can't. I wouldn't want to. I can't tell who needs to hear that their personal favoritism is evidence of the fact that they don't know Christ. Or who needs to hear that they just need to live out their identity in Christ and keep growing. But I do know that partiality is absolutely antithetical to the faith of Jesus Christ and that when we play favorites, we are living like those who have never met him. So here's what we need to do. James isn't like some of the other books in the New Testament. Uh, Many of these other New Testament books work like this. Here's what God has done. Now you should respond in kind. That's not how James is organized. He says, there's a lot of empty religion out there. Here's how a real Christian lives. So I think as we turn to our response to a passage like this, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Question number one, am I a Christian? A real one. That is, do I have a real covenant, personal, family relationship with Jesus Christ? Maybe today the Spirit of God is convicting you of the reality that your normal mode of operation is to size people up and sort them into categories of this person can help me get to where I want to be and this person can't get them out of the way. And the reason that you're living that way is quite simply because you don't actually have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the solution is not just to clean up your act and be better. The solution is that you need to call out to Christ in faith and follow him and show the world that you belong to him by being baptized as a, as a real Christian, a real believer. Amen. But maybe you're convicted about the sin of partiality and it's not because you aren't a Christian, it's because the spirit of God is shaping you and molding you and taking you to a place of greater conformity to Christ and this is the next step. And it seems to me that as we confess our sin and conform our way of thinking to the mind of Christ, we may also need to change our behavior. So let me ask a couple, of, a couple more questions. Is there some specific way that the sin of partiality has sneaked into your heart and the Spirit of God is exposing that to you today? Then what do we do, folks? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Another question, what's behind that personal favoritism? What's behind that personal favoritism? Is it fear? You feel like it's going to cost you something to have a friendship with that other person who you feel like is a drain on you? Is it envy? Is it greed? What's behind that? In order to kill the sin, you've got to deal with the root cause. What idolatry is taking root in your heart that's causing you to act in a certain way. Next question. Is there an individual or a group of people that you've been avoiding and you need to begin to honor them like Christ and, and, and welcome them into your life? And maybe, is there anybody that you need to ask forgiveness from? How can you do that this week? Another question, is there a person or group of persons that you show deference to because you really want them to like you and so you haven't really been a true friend to them? You're not willing to say what needs to be said because of the sin of partiality. And you need to repent and be a real friend to them regardless of what they're going to do in retaliation or return. Here's the good news. This is, the world will not tell you this. 
but we know it from the scriptures. Our God is a God who forgives and welcomes prejudiced people. He is a God who forgives racists. He is a God who forgives the greedy and the fearful. And if you're hearing me today and you're breathing and you're a human being, he is a God who can forgive you. Amen. So would, would, would we be able to walk in that today? Would you bow with me now and let's just take a moment to respond to God's word. Father, uh, what a sobering challenge from your word. Uh, truthfully, all of us have at one time or another, and even perhaps right now, seen the seed forms of this sin germinating in the soils of our heart. And so, Lord, I just ask that your grace would reign right now. I pray specifically for those who you are convicting because they are far from you and they need to exercise faith and give their lives to you. I pray that today would be the day that you throw open the window and shine the light of your truth in their hearts and I pray that they would throw away the fear of man and the love of sin and come to Christ without waiting. And Father, for those of us who are in Christ, who have the Spirit, Lord, we lean on the reality that you are a gracious and merciful God showing mercy to thousands. That you show covenant and steadfast love toward those who love you. And I pray that as our hearts condemn us, we would remember that you are greater than our heart. And that we have an advocate before your throne. He is constantly praying, even now. Thank you, Jesus, for praying for us. Thank you, Spirit, for uttering words too, uh, prayers too deep for words. And Father, I, I pray that you would empower us to return to you and to truly follow your Son. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.